Good morning, church. It's good to see all of you. How many of you here know the Sibelius? Few of you. If you don't know them, get to know them. They're some of the coolest people you will ever meet in your life. And they've always been encouraging to me from day one, some of the most hospitable people, uh, people who love God and also live on mission and really reprioritize their whole life, everything uh, to reach kids for Christ through uh, Young Life. And so um, if, you're, if you feel like you're a little stagnant in your relationship with God, talk to them. That'll change. So you're a blessing to our church. And I thank God for both of you. So, yes, amen. So if you don't know me, my name is Matt Ortiz and one of the pastors here and we're continuing our third season in King Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And today we come to two short verses, two direct, hard-hitting, challenging sentences and they are the words of Jesus found in Matthew chapter 5 verses 31 through 32 and we're going to read those. And so brace yourselves, all right? Jesus says this, starting in verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Well, it's Valentine's week, <laughs> so we may as well talk about divorce and adultery, <laughs> right? You probably won't find Jesus' words here in a Valentine's Day card, uh, but I have found that there are some crazy cards out there, cards that say things like, being married is like having a best friend that doesn't remember anything you say. Another one says, no man is truly married until he understands every word his wife is not saying. And marriage lets you annoy one special person for the rest of your life. So I got an amen in there. <laughs> That's funny. We start a little light because this passage is heavy. And it's challenging to preach because there are only two verses with no disclaimers, no nuances, no qualifiers. And if you're not a Christian and you're here exploring who Jesus is, you might cringe when you hear these words. And let me tell you something. I totally understand. And I'm glad that you're here and that you're open and willing to investigate what the scriptures have to say and I know that this passage sounds like one of those Christian things that might turn you off. But this is not the only thing that Jesus or his word has to say about marriage and divorce, but it's an important part of what Jesus wants us to wrestle with. So I want to acknowledge right off the top here that most of us, are here today, we've showed up today with scars and struggles related to divorce. It could be our own or our parents or people close to us. 
And whether these words are new to you or familiar to you, they can be hard to hear. But here's what I hope you will see. That as much as these words these of Jesus can, can bring hurt to the surface, and that's a very real possibility this morning as we walk through this together, as much as they could bring hurt to the surface, Jesus' words here are not here to, he doesn't say them to burden you, he doesn't say them to scold you, but with every, uh, as with every single word in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus speaks these words to bless you. It's just hard to see at first. His words raise a lot of questions, and I'm telling you, there's no way in the world I can answer all of them today. And so, you know, as pastors, we want you to feel the freedom uh, to come to us and talk with us. These things are, are meant to be wrestled with in community. And for now, what we're going to do uh, for our time together is we're going to wrestle with uh, three questions. And the first question is, what is Jesus saying about marriage and divorce? And the second question will just focus on what does Jesus say about marriage? And the third question will just focus on what does Jesus have to say about uh, divorce? And so our first question is this. What is being said about marriage and divorce? Now, I don't know, maybe you're like me and you hear these words and your reaction is, time out, one second, hold on. Jesus just drops this bomb and then he just moves on to the next thing? I mean, I have some questions. Why is he being so brief? How come just two sentences? Well, Jesus can be brief because of the context Jesus was actually addressing a conversation that was going on in that culture, in that time, regarding marriage, and the people already knew what Jesus was addressing. Jesus says in verse 31, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. When he says it was said, what's he referring to? Well, the rabbis, priests, and teachers of the day were all talking about and debating this phrase, certificate of divorce, and that is found in Deuteronomy chapter 24. Jesus is referring to that, a central passage in, that, in the famous debate of that time regarding when it was allowable to end a marriage covenant. And Deuteronomy 24 basically says... Listen to this. When a man takes a wife and then she finds no favor in his eyes because he finds some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce, there's that phrase, and if she marries again and her new husband writes her a certificate of divorce or dies, she can't go back to the first husband because she's defiled. Wasn't our first passage difficult enough? Well, hang in there with me, okay? This certificate of divorce was a formal document that, one, ended a marriage, and two, gave the divorced parties freedom to remarry. And everyone at that time agreed that in some cases, it was allowable in the eyes of God to get divorced with a clear and binding process, a certificate of divorce. Now this next question 
about the husband finding some indecency in his wife. What's that all about? Well, in that era, husbands had the decision-making power to end a marriage or keep a marriage. And so what is this some indecency it's talking about? This is the debate that was going on in Jesus' day and exactly what Jesus was addressing. There were those, there were two camps following two different rabbis. There were those who, who followed Rabbi Hillel. And he said that some indecency meant anything a husband thought was displeasing enough to him to end the marriage, and they called it any cause divorce. In the Mishnah, the first major rabbinic work of literature in Judaism's primary book of legal theory, in the Mishnah, it said that a man could divorce his wife if she became deaf, if she became mute, if she got warts, if she failed to perform services in the home like cooking and cleaning, if she had poor posture, if she had thin hair, if she had no eyebrows, or if she had bushy eyebrows. He could divorce her if she, he didn't like that she was missing teeth, or if she had a swollen belly, or if he found someone he thought was prettier than her. Or if, against the husband's wishes, the in-laws moved into the same city. I think I heard another amen up there. <laughs> That's in there, in the Mishnah. Wives in that day could constantly be under the threat of a divorce for any reason. The threat that her husband could just throw her away like trash and leave her powerless and destitute. That was Rabbi Hillel. Well, there was another camp that followed Rabbi Shammai. And Shammai taught that Deuteronomy 24 does not teach any cause divorce. He said that some indecency means unfaithfulness through sexual infidelity, and it was the only valid reason to end the marriage according to Deuteronomy 24. Now, I didn't know just how common divorce was in Jesus' day. But it was incredibly common, and most of the divorces by far happened under the any cause interpretation of Hillel. And so when Jesus says, you have heard it said, he's addressing this particular debate about this particular passage, and he is supporting the view of Rabbi Shammai. Deuteronomy 24 only allows for divorce because of sexual infidelity. Now, Jesus is settling the debate, but he's actually doing more than just settling the debate. Jesus is reframing the entire conversation about marriage and divorce. He says that when it comes to marriage, you've all been asking, when do I have an out? But the essence of marriage is a promise that says, every aspect of my life, everything about me 
is committed 100% to you. And I am closing all the other way, possible ways out. Matthew 19 is a parallel passage where Jesus goes on to explain more, and that's on the back of your insert if you want to see it. And in verse 3, it says that later the Pharisees came up to Jesus and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And how does Jesus respond in that passage? Well, he he basically says, you're starting in the wrong place. You can't start in Deuteronomy chapter 24. You need to start in Genesis 2 when, when, when God instituted marriage and all that it could be and sh should be and all of its beauty. And here the people have seen so many marriages end in divorce that they became disillusioned with it and they lost God's purpose and design for marriage. And so when Jesus reaffirms marriage um, in, in laying out God's boundaries for divorce, even Jesus' own disciples say at the end of that passage, "Are you, really, are you serious? I guess it means that it's better to not get married in the first place. That's how cynical people were about a lifelong covenant marriage. What was being said in Jesus' day about marriage and divorce is absolutely familiar to us, isn't it? Because we see it in our day, in our culture. And what I found is that most people, just talk to any random person at the mall or whatever, most people today can only think of one or two marriages that they admire. One or two marriages that that possibly inspire them or others to possibly get married. And that's it. We've seen so much brokenness everywhere. Now let's look at marriage and divorce separately. And we begin by recovering God's purpose for marriage. And that's what Jesus is doing here. And so our second question in your notes, if you're following along, is, is what is Jesus saying about marriage? You know, in a way, when, when we see all of the background and, and look at these two verses in its context, we see that these two verses aren't simply about divorce. They're really about marriage. In fact, verse 31, that first verse that we read, is a continuation of the passage before that we looked at last week in verse 27 where Jesus gives us the seventh commandment where he says, you've heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. And Jesus says the way that you, paraphrasing, the way you want to respond to that seventh commandment is to ask how broad can we make the qualifications for a, a legal and lawful divorce? It, Jesus basically says I'm less concerned with that and more concerned about you understanding why there are biblical boundaries for marriage and divorce in the first place. Just like the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. It is not so much about the absence of idolatry, but it's about protecting exclusive worship and devotion to God alone. 
And in the same way, the seventh commandment is not just about not committing adultery. It's about protecting the sacredness and the beauty of what God wants to do in and through marriage. Now, in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount here, Jesus is basically saying to us, I came to flip your world upside down. You've been asking, what am I allowed to do? But I'm showing you, Jesus says, where to find my blessing. You find my blessing in marriage in total commitment, not only as you enjoy the good times, but absolutely and especially as you work through the hard times, the broken times, the dark times. If and when you hit rock bottom in your marriage, that's exactly when you need Jesus' blessing to pour into your life and marriage. So what's that look like? I think we see it when we read Jesus' introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, known as the Beatitudes, which was the first season in the Sermon on the Mount that we did, you can find them on the, online. When we read the Beatitudes in light of our struggle with marriage, for example, we might say, I feel hopeless in my marriage. I don't have the strength or the answers, or the resources to make this marriage work. And Jesus says, blessed are the poor, the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Or you might say, you know what, it is so difficult, and I am so hurt, I am holding in a, a, a lot of pain, and I, I don't know where to go, so I went out. And Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Or you might say, you know what, sometimes I feel like the only way to survive in my marriage is to manipulate or get angry or just withdraw. And Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Or you might say, I really want a God-glorifying happy marriage, but, but part of me has died to us ever Getting there, we have grown so far apart. And Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Or you might say, you know what, I have been so hurt and, and you know, we're so different that all I think about is defending or getting payback or getting even and, and all I see are my spouse's faults. And Jesus says, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Or you might say, I am so unhappy in my marriage, I'm tempted to take my heart and give it to someone or something else. And Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. But, but we're so stuck in conflict, we can't seem to make any progress. It's easier to coexist. Uh, and if we don't learn to resolve our conflicts, I, I don't know what will happen and Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons and daughters of God. Or we say, if, if I take the path of a loving, grace-filled commitment 
my spouse might take advantage of me. Just throw it back on my face and nothing will change. And Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is saying, I have given you those boundaries to protect your marriage, but also to give you blessing. And you know, just staying within the marriage boundaries is not enough. We need to come to Jesus in prayer, in his word, with the help of his community, and with counsel. And as we do, we find that we are blessed. And you're blessed in several ways. First is this. You're blessed because you will change. That is a blessing. You will change. Jesus does not guarantee a happy marriage. Jesus does not guarantee a changed spouse. But he does guarantee that you will change when you come to him in your rock-bottom marriage despair. I have seen couples who have struggled. I've seen couples who were in incredible crisis and, and were tempted with divorce. But then they, I saw them as they, in faith, looked to Jesus to stay within the boundaries of marriage and divorce that he established. And I have watched them find abundant blessing. They end up saying things like, after all is said and done and through it all, we've never felt closer to God. That is a blessing. If they had ignored Jesus' boundaries regarding marriage and divorce and got a divorce for an unbiblical reason, they would have totally missed that blessing. Here's what I know, and I'm, I know it's true uh, for you. You might not experience it right now, but this is how God works through marriage. I know in my marriage, it is the single most important thing God has used in my life to bring me closer to him. Through good times, through tough times, and through all the brokenness. I have seen God use that to draw me closer to Him. So you will change. That's a blessing. Second blessing is your spouse will likely change. You can be somewhat optimistic about that. However, there is no guarantee. None. But you have more hope than you would otherwise. And I want you to know that the most important human factor in change is having a person in your life that, that knows you, that knows your flaws, that knows your brokenness, that, 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 that knows how, uh, how you sin against each other and, and chooses to not pull away, but instead draws near. I came across a story about Charles Hodge, who's a theologian out of Princeton Theological Seminary. And his wife's name was Sarah, and at the age of 51, Sarah's health began to decline. Her cancer was so bad that Charles Hodge lost all hope of her recovery. And in her final weeks, he personally... Nurse Sarah spending countless hours just lying next to her in her bed. And he held her hand and conversed with her whenever she had the energy and the strength. 
And the depth of their love for each other remained so strong that later Hodge said, to the last, she was like a girl in love. During her final weeks, Sarah asked Charles to tell her in detail how much he loved her and he was happy to do so. They spent time recounting the high points of their lives together. And in Sarah's last hours, she looked at her children, gathered around her bed, and she murmured, I give them to God. Hodge then asked her if she thought him to be a devoted husband. And she replied as she sweetly passed her hand over his face, there never was such another. Marriage is for better or worse, in plenty or in want, in joy or sorrow, in health or in sickness, as long as you both shall live. So at the end, our spouse can look us in the eye and say, there never was such another. I mean, that's what God wants for marriage, that's the blessing he has for those who are in marriage that is centered and focused on him. So that's what God wants for marriage. There's another question we have to ask, and that is your third point in your notes. What is Jesus saying about divorce? I'm going to list a few things here. First, Jesus says caution. You know, in every wedding I do, I make the charge, what God has joined together, let no one tear apart. That's from Matthew 19 in this passage on the back of your notes. This God-created bond cannot be separated without a painful cost. The pain of tearing apart for all involved, spouses, children, family, extended family, friends, So if the divorce word has been spoken in your marriage and if it's entered your mind, Jesus lovingly says, caution, you have no idea what you're, you have no idea what you're considering. Second, there's a correction. Even in, in divorces where there are biblical grounds, Jesus makes a very Radical move in Matthew 19, verses 7 and 8, where the Pharisees said to Jesus, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce. Divorce, for biblical causes, is allowed, but it is never commanded. So what that tells us is that Jesus says there can be hope for reconciliation even in the most difficult situations. So that's caution, the correction. What are the causes? The legitimate biblical grounds or conditions. We have to look at the whole counsel of God and also Uh, through the work of many faithful Orthodox Christians throughout church history, based on scriptures and reflected in various Orthodox confessions of faith, like the Westminster Confession of Faith, we see some legitimate causes of conditions for divorce. Matthew 5, Matthew 19 says sexual infidelity. 
And later in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he says that being abandoned or deserted by his spouse is another legitimate cause. And abandonment or desertion can be difficult to define sometimes, and sometimes, you know, sometimes it's obvious, and sometimes it can include sins which are determined to be equal in extremity and consequence to actual desertion. Divorce will always be costly and always be painful, far more than you can ever imagine. So divorce is always a last resort. So what we see here is a call to seek reconciliation with the help of the church. And then there's compassion and care. What if, you know, what if I've gone through a divorce that did not fall under those biblical conditions? Jesus says, yes, it was sinful, and therefore that's why, you know, it's so destructive. But it's not the unforgivable sin. It's not in a special class of sin all its own. So Jesus invites you to find grace. He invites you to find healing through repentance and faith. And repentance includes confession and all honesty before God, before all parties involved, whatever possible and not harmful in, in seeking reconciliation of the relationship. Now this might mean restoring the marriage. It might mean extending forgiveness. It might mean asking for forgiveness. In John chapter 4, we see Jesus approach the woman at the well. And it appears that she was deserted or divorced five times and was currently in an adulterous relationship. Jesus' interaction with her is a picture of how he invites you into his compassionate care. If you have fallen in this area like she has. Jesus pursues us in our failure. He pursues us in, in our brokenness. He does not define you or look at you through the lens of your sin. And he, as he said to this woman, he wants to heal you with living water. It's the power of the gospel of who Jesus is and what he's done for you to bring you restoration and reconciliation with God. He compassionately addresses her guilt to set her free from it and any lingering sin by extending forgiveness and restoration to her. So just as Jesus interceded, uh, interacted with this woman, we as a church, the people of Jesus, are to follow his lead in this. And, and, and it is my sincere prayer that our church would be a place of healing, that our church would be a place of restoration, that our church would be a place of, of, of repentance that leads to greater faith for all who have experienced this brokenness of divorce. So, I have a question. It might be one on your mind. 
In light of all that, if you were married and now you realize you didn't follow Jesus' teaching, is Jesus saying in Matthew 5.32 that you are in a permanent state of adultery? No. First, Jesus is strongly warning the initiator of the divorce. He's saying, you're using Deuteronomy 24 as a cheap cover. But not only are you breaking the heart of the seventh commandment, you're causing other people to break it too. Second, there is no such thing as permanent sin if you have repented. The cross is more powerful than any of our sin. And third, Jesus is saying that after a wrongful divorce, when, when reconciliation, if reconciliation is possible, seek it. But if it's not possible because of, of a, a, a new marriage or because of abandonment or whatever, and so that adultery is not multiplied, stay in your current marriage. Craig Blomberg said, divorced Christians who have remarried should not commit the sin of a second divorce to try to resume relations with a previous spouse, but should begin afresh to observe God's standards by remaining faithful to their current spouse. We've asked and answered a lot of questions, and I know that there is no way in the world that I addressed them all. So as pastors, we, we invite you to come and speak with us and, and don't wait. I have some final thoughts for those who are not married, those who are married, and then for everyone. And I'll close with this. Uh, I'm going to address those who are not yet married a little bit more. If you're not married yet, if you haven't been married yet, do you have a list, like a love list? I want him to be like this and this and this and this and this, and I want her to be like this and this and this and this and this. Things that you're looking for in a future potential spouse. Well, William Willeman said, a pastor officiating a marriage ceremony does not ask John do you love Susan? The pastor asks John, will you love Susan? The pastor says that, explains that love is defined as something we promise to do. It is the result of marriage rather than its cause. So your list, you might, we all have lists, I'm sure. It should be more about ways you can grow into the kind of person who can make that lifelong covenant promise to another. And if you're not married yet, what are your fears? You know, the, the Marriage and Family Research Council found that the U.S. marriage rate is 31.1 or 31 marriages per 1,000 unmarried women. For comparison, in 1920, the national marriage rate was 92.3. And today, as we all know, it's no surprise, we're all very aware that marriage is being delayed longer than ever and is being set aside and rejected by more people than ever. 
people are understandably disillusioned and fearful because of the countless marriage casualties and the fallout. And it creates an environment even more difficult for those who want to get married. Marriage is difficult enough. But with Jesus at the center, marriage can be a great blessing, not only to you, but also to the world. And still to those who are not married yet, my question for you is, what is it you are really seeking? A God-given desire for companionship is a good thing, but I am telling you, right here, according to God's word and according to countless examples I've personally witnessed, marriage will not quench your thirst. In some ways, it'll increase it. So the worst way to start a marriage is thinking that your spouse will complete you or satisfy all of your needs. Only Jesus can do that. You cannot put that expectation on your spouse. Only something Jesus can do. It'll ruin the relationship. And as you wait and trust, whether you get married or not, you are not deficient because Jesus is enough. He's enough. And to those of you who are married, I'm telling you that there is so much more that we could have talked about. I had enough notes for a sermon that lasted an hour and a half. And we could probably spend a week together at a camp somewhere in the woods unpacking all this together and still not cover everything. But let me just say this. Wrestle with what we talked about. Review it. Pray over it. Talk with your spouse about it. And if you find that you are distant from each other, or you're stuck, don't wait to get help. I do not know of any strong marriage that has not sought outside help. Don't wait. And then last, for everyone here, I'll close with this. Why is Jesus so passionate about this issue of marriage and divorce? Well, because the story of the Bible tells us that he's experienced the pain and destructiveness of it. And here's what I mean. A theme that, through, that runs throughout the entire story of the Bible is that our rebellion and our sin is spiritual adultery. And until, you know, I, I see my own spiritual unfaithfulness as spiritual adultery, I won't understand what the Bible says about marriage and divorce. Until we see Jesus' faithful, pursuing, and covenant love as the love of a perfect husband, I won't understand or be able to apply what the Bible is saying about marriage. The marriage most talked about in the scriptures is not our marriages to each other, but it's God's marriage to his people. 
his bride, the church. You know, and you know, the prophets in Isaiah chapter 50, verse 1, and Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 8, tell us that because of our spiritual adultery and faithfulness and unfaithfulness, God, with great anguish, wrote his people a certificate of divorce. It's the story of Israel and all of us. And we all turned away from the perfect love of God and became guilty of spiritual adultery worthy of divorce. But the Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians 5 how God responded to our spiritual adultery and unfaithfulness. He says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in all splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. It is only that love that can empower us to love our spouse. It is only that love that sets us free to admit that that we are sinful and broken husbands, wives, our marriages. It is only that love that cleanses us from all of our failures in marriage and divorce. And it is only that love that sees us as we are, never turns away, and will never, ever fail. Amen? Amen. Would you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your word. And we thank you that, that, that you shoot straight with us and that the things that Jesus says here seems on the surface to just be tough and to crush us, but in reality, in the context of the gospel and your word, that Jesus wants nothing but blessing for us. And so, God, I pray that you would increase our trust in you, knowing that you give us boundaries because you love us and want to bless us. God, I pray that you would forgive us for the times that we don't trust you and we just do whatever we want anyway. We base so much of our decisions based on the way we feel and ignore the truth. But God, I pray that you give us strong feelings of love for you and for the truth so that we might obey you with all joy and peace. We acknowledge that your ways are not our ways. Your ways are are the way of blessing and grace and love and compassion and our way leads to destruction. So help us to trust you. Help us to see that even though we were unfaithful to you, you were faithful to us. And we thank you that Jesus 
loved us, the church, those who would become a part of it, so much that he gave himself up for us. In light of that, fill our hearts with love for you and love for his spouses, especially in the times that are rough. God, I pray for those who are not married yet. God, I pray that you would comfort them uh, in the, during the times where they feel so discontent. I've talked to so many people who feel so, so empty because they're not married. And so, God, I pray that, that you would fill their hearts with a true knowledge that only you can satisfy their greatest, deepest longings of their hearts. Whether we're married or not, I pray that our first love is always you, first and foremost. God, I pray, Lord, that in our view of our relationship with you and each other and in marriage, that as a church it would be a, an encouraging uh, blessing and testimony to the world. And we pray that you would use that to advance your kingdom and the truth of your gospel. We pray these things in your name.